You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Titus. It's towards the end uh, of your Bible. Um, I just want to acknowledge that in in turning our attention here to Titus, it, uh, well, I don't know the way to say it other than our service has already held quite a bit. And I can kind of feel that. And I'm just hopeful that as we turn our attention to, to what God has for us, starting a new series this morning, uh, that God will just be uh, gracious to meet us in that. Uh, last Sunday, we wrapped up our wisdom series. And uh, we will be in the book of Titus all of May and all of uh, June. Uh, this morning, we'll be in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And let me start by reading that for us. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word, though the preaching, through the preaching, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. All of that in Greek is one sentence. It's amazing. And it's not grammatically correct, but it, it's true. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Uh, William Blake was an uh, English uh, theologian and poet, writer and painter. He lived in the late 1700s and early 1800s, he put words to something that we all experience as humans, Christian or not, religious or not. Um, It's something that is uh, intrinsic to our nature. And I think hearing this quote from him, I think having these words from him will help us understand the book of Titus as we try to get an understanding of, of where we're going and what the message is. And so here's what William Blake said long ago. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. You know what that means? Um, He's saying there's a relationship between what we adore, um, what has our attention, and then how we act. Um, So what has our attention shapes our action. What we behold, we become. I think it's really important that we all kind of go uh, here together. So let me just offer a few examples of how I see this playing out in our lives. Some are more serious than others, some more silly than others. But like a few Saturdays ago, I was at uh, my son's flag football game and there was a fourth grade team that was playing on the field that my son's team was gonna play on. And they were finishing up their game and it must've been like really close. I think it was tied or something like that because everyone's freaking out. Um, Every play really mattered a lot. And then what happened was uh, there's this pass, like last play of the game. This kid makes this incredible catch in the end zone, like he's already accomplished more as a fourth grader athletically than I ever have my entire life, and so it's frustrating. He makes this catch, he scores the winning touchdown, and then in the end zone, he does this dance. And the dance has a name, it's called the Gritty. You know what that is? (laughs) If you don't know what that is, just ask any like junior high or high school student at our church, and they'll probably be happy to show you what it is, or ask Bleeker, I've seen him do it before, (laughs) I'm sure he'd be happy to do it for you. Um, and, And here's the thing, Why did he celebrate like that? 
Why did the fourth grader do that dance when he scored the touchdown? That's how NFL wide receivers celebrate when they score touchdowns, some of them. Uh, that's how college wide receivers celebrate when they score touchdowns. When the video goes viral on social media of the guy making the game-winning catch, there are a few really popular celebrations, and that's one of them. And so what's happening in the life of that fourth grader? He saw that at some point. He saw that online. He saw somebody that he admired. He saw some sort of athlete that maybe he wants to be like someday, make the catch and do that dance. And he says this, when I score a touchdown, I'm going to do that dance. And it's simple. It's silly. I get that. But he beheld something, and then he became like the thing that he beheld. Um, in 1978, the president of PBS, Public Broadcasting System, wrote an article in the New York Times, uh, and he was arguing for a certain kind of quality of television. He was arguing for things that should be on television and arguing against things that he did not think should be on television. And the government was about to pass some sort of bill that impacted what did and did not go on TVs across the homes in America. And so he writes this article, and here's what he says about television and about its power. He says, it reflects the quality of our culture and the character of our priorities. Television must in some way give people a sense of who they are and how they live. Public television has the responsibility to reflect what we want our country to be, what we want our society to be, what we want ourselves to be, and what we want our lives to be. That's his argument in 1978. You know what he named the article? The title, you can Google it and find it in the New York Times. The title of that article was Becoming What We Behold. In the article, he quotes Thomas Blake. He says, or William, he quotes Blake and he says, we become what we behold. Because here's what he knew then and here's what we know now just with regard to screens. What's on the screens in our homes and in our lives affects how we live. It affects how we live. If you have children, you have rules. You have screen rules in your home, most likely what they can and can't watch. And partly, one of the reasons you have those rules is because you don't want them to be influenced by some things. There's things that you don't want them to see on TV and then try to emulate in their lives. Like growing up, I grew up in this kind of home. Growing up, I could not watch The Simpsons because my mom and dad did not want me to act like Bart. I already had enough of that in my life and I did not need any help, right? So they didn't want uh, the thing. What, what they knew is what's on the screen doesn't have a neutral effect on us. The screens in our lives and what's on them, it doesn't just entertain us, it shapes us, it forms us. That's true for kids, that's also true for adults. People who consume a lot of partisan news, they tend to talk about politics and people uh, the way that the people on the TV talk about politics and people. Um, people who consume a lot of social media, they have higher rates of depression and anxiety because it's not good for the soul to see hours and hours of everyone else's curated life and compare their curated life to our life. I'm not picking on TV. I'm not picking on social media. I consume a lot of it, but just see with me. It's another example of beholding and becoming. What has our attention shapes our actions. Beyond that, it shapes our very character. Maybe even we can connect with this. Just, just think about the people in your life that you admire. Do you have heroes? People you'd say, I, I, I just think the world of that person. And, and you're around them, and when you're around them, you're impressed with something about them. Maybe not everything about them, but something about them. You have those people in your life? I've got a handful of those people in my life. And they're not just people that I admire. Uh, they are people I want to be like. 
Like I walk away from time with them and I think about the things that are true about them that I wish were true about me. Maybe it's their character. Maybe it's their gift. Maybe it's their work ethic. Maybe it's you know, who they are in their home, who they are in their marriage, who they are with their friends. I behold something about them and I instinctively want to become like them. We become what we behold. You see it in innocent things like fourth graders doing touchdown dances. We see it in the way that we have to pay attention to the media that we consume because it doesn't just entertain us, it forms us. And we see it in the way that we want to be like our heroes. We become what we behold. Are you with me? Okay. Here's why that's true. God made us that way. Uh, That's not a flaw in the human condition. That is connected to the way that God originally made us as humans. We are image bearers. And what does it mean to be an image bearer? It means that we were made as these little God mirrors that reflect him out in the world. Genesis 1, God makes humanity in his image and gives us the capacity to reflect God in the world. So we all have the capacity to reflect whatever our life is aimed at. So to take it a step further, we become what we worship. We were created to worship God, and in worshiping God, godliness will come out of our lives. Because of sin, we worship things that are not God. And when we behold what's not God, godlessness or the absence of God comes out of our lives. If we behold God, we become godly. If we behold what's not God, we become like whatever that thing is that's not God. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul describes our sanctification, which is just a theological word for our becoming like Jesus in these words. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Did you hear it? Beholding Jesus and then becoming like him. We become what we behold. One of the most important questions, I I just believe this with my whole heart, one of the most important questions we can ask as Christians is what am I beholding? Uh, Or... Even a more like maybe diagnostic question than that is, am I becoming like what I say I believe and behold and, and, and adore? What has captured my heart and mind? What is forming who I am? We'll come back to that. What are you beholding? You might be asking a question. You might be asking, what does this have to do with Titus? It's a great question. Titus is a short letter written around 60 AD by the Apostle Paul. Paul was a preacher and a pastor and a church planter, and he's writing to a guy. Do you want to guess what the guy's name is? Titus. You're so smart. Titus is from a place called Antioch. Uh, He's Greek. He was not born into a Christian home. He was born into a pagan home. He most likely became a believer through Paul's ministry. We don't know a lot about him. There are 13 references to Titus in the New Testament, including the references in the book that has his name. But here's what we do know about him. When he's mentioned, he is almost always mentioned Um, in some sort of crisis situation. Uh, He's with Paul in Jerusalem. Paul presents Titus as a Gentile convert to substantiate his ministry to the Gentiles because there are people in Jerusalem that are like, I'm not sure if the gospel is for the Gentiles. And Paul's like, here's Titus. It's for him. It's for all the Gentiles. Paul tasks him to help raise money to help fight a famine that was plugging the people of God. Uh, He was really involved in helping heal division in the church in Corinth. Um, If you know anything about 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you know that church was an absolute mess, and Titus was one of the ones that was there helping clean up the mess. So so think with me, is there someone in your life that's really good in crisis? Uh, You have some sort of 
chaotic thing happening in your life, and this is the person you call maybe just to talk through it. You have some sort of crisis in your life, and this is the person that you want in the room with you. Do you know someone like that? As I was thinking, the first person that came to my mind was Michael Snetzer, our recovery pastor. He is just, he is just calm and clear and secure. It's like the more chaotic things are, the more uh, confident he is. It's wonderful. I really admire him. And maybe you have someone like that in your life. Titus was that in Paul's life. One commentator called Titus Paul's crisis intervention specialist. Another commentator said about Titus, he must have been a man of strong affection, winsome personality, and devout enthusiasm. How great would it be for someone to say that about you in a book? They're a person of strong affection, winsome personality, and devout enthusiasm. And so he's a remarkable guy. He loves Jesus. He's good with people. He does really well when things are not going very well. So if you're here and your name happens to be Titus, be proud. It's a really good name. The letter is written to Titus because he's in another crisis situation. Paul's given him another crisis assignment. He's on an island called Crete. And we need to spend some time talking about Crete. I need you to know that I know that you didn't wake up saying, I just don't know enough about Crete. It's really holding me back in life. I hope we talk about that at church today. I get that that's probably not why you're here. It's important, though, to understand what's going on in the book. And I think that in understanding it, God's going to speak through that understanding in a really specific way to all of us. Crete's a massive island in the Mediterranean Sea, south of Greece. When you hear island, don't think of a land covered in sand. Think of land covered in cities, because that's Crete. Um, it's a place of business. Uh, a lot of the trade that ended up making its way into the Roman Empire had to first go through Crete, so it's economically successful. Uh, there's a lot of wealthy people there. There are at least 20 different cities on the island of Crete. And here's what you need to know about their religion. The people of Crete worship the Greek gods and goddesses. Did you have to read Homer in high school or college, Iliad, Odyssey? If you read Homer, you probably have some sort of understanding of, of Greek uh, theology. Maybe you watched the cartoon Hercules at one point, or maybe you've seen some of the Thor movies, so you're familiar with some of the names of those gods. If you're familiar at all, you know this, that the Greeks believed there is a pantheon of gods and goddesses who were the gods over different parts of life. There was a god of war and a god of love and a god of the harvest and uh, a god of the sea and all those kinds of things. Here's what was unique about Crete's religion. They had a different spin on it. The people of Crete believed that most of those gods were originally Cretan humans. They believed that humanity itself started on Crete, that people weren't born originally, they just emerged from the island. So Crete had its own creation story. Uh, according to Cretan religion, the Greek gods and goddesses were once Cretan people. And what happened is these Cretan people lived in such a way that they one day became gods. They achieved deity. Uh, for Cretans, the one that they were most proud of was the god Zeus, who was the god of gods. They believed Zeus was a Cretan man. Uh, and this Cretan man lived in such a way that he achieved divine status and the people on the island worshipped him for it. Some believe that his body was even buried in their city. There were inscriptions on buildings in Crete that called Zeus our savior. So they had a creation story and they had a salvation story. That's their religion. The other really significant thing we need to know about these people is their reputation. If you were just to do a quick Google search, 
uh, about what the people of Crete were like, you would find quotes ranging from the 6th century BC all the way to the 4th century AD. So it's like 800 years or something like that. And all of those quotes would say something like this, the people of Crete are bad people. They are a shady people. Uh, watch out for the people of Crete. They had a really bad reputation, so they were known for being violent people. A common job for the men of Crete was that they were soldiers for hire. They were mercenaries, um, and uh, they were known for their violence. There's a quote about Cretans from the third century BC that calls them thieves and pirates. Crete was famous for their wine, so there was a lot of alcohol abuse among the people. Uh, one commentator said it this way, drunkenness prevailed on the island of Crete. They were in the middle of a kind of sexual revolution that marked a lot of the Roman Empire, but was especially pronounced on the island of Crete. So it was a culture that was marked by casual sex, and the morals around sex were changing among them uh, to where sexual indulgence was actually, sexual indulgence was considered to be uh, the good life and part of what it meant to be living the good life. The thing that gets mentioned most often is that Cretans were liars. They had a problem with truth, and they had a problem with truth-telling. There's a Greek word for lying, and it's literally translated to be a Cretan. To cretize meant to lie. And you actually hear all of this kind of decadent reputation in the book. If you look with me down at verse 12, it says this. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Then it says, this testimony is true. <laughs> And that's in the Bible. That's really tough, isn't it? Like Paul's quoting um, a Greek prophet from the 6th century BC named Epimenides. And he is this theologian of his own people saying about his own people, we always lie, we act like animals, we have no self-control. And then Paul says, yes, that's true. I've been there and that's true. Um, imagine having something like that about your people in the Bible to stay forever. Like I've lived in Texas my whole life. I love Texas, Texas forever, it's home. Can you imagine if this was in the Bible about Texans? Texans are always liars, animals, they're lazy, they eat too much. Now some of you who are not from here, you might think that's true and you're just here because there's no state income tax or something like that. <laughs> that's fine. Um, but that's not the generally accepted reputation of people from this state. Think about this, think about uh, I know I've joked, but just think about how scathing this is. From 6th century BC to 4th century AD, the most common comment about these people was, you cannot trust them, they're bad people. Someone asks, where are you from? You say, I'm from Crete. They immediately judge you, are scared of you, assume the worst about you, and, and then all of these adjectives to describe you start to fill their mind. They're a liar, they're a thief, they're promiscuous, they're an alcoholic, they have no self-control. I have a question. Why were Cretans like that? What was it about the island that had such a hold on people that for eight or nine centuries, this is what they were like? You become what you behold. Remember the gods of Crete? Uh, we talked about this three minutes ago. These gods were notorious for lying. They were notorious for violence. They were notorious for not having any self-control. Their hero, Zeus, is described this way in the stories that they told about him in this country. Whitney Wallard, she's a theologian with the Bible Project, and she describes it this way. Zeus was a liar and a womanizer, and the Cretans immortalized him for this. 
They took pride in his shady character in underhanded ways. So think about this with me. Think you live in a culture that believes your home is the birthplace of all humanity and the birthplace of most of the gods, including the God of God, Zeus. And that God was once a man. He lived in such a way that he himself became God. And while some of the stories talk about the good things he did and the wisdom, most of the stories herald his deception and using people and shady character and underhanded ways. And so you're growing up in this story of this is what it means to be a Cretan. This is what it means to be human. That's got to shape how you live. If that's the vision for what a successful human looks like, if that's what you behold, that's what you're going to become, if that's what you think is right. And so some in Crete maybe even believe that if they lived the way that he lived, they too could become God. The image of that kind of life was beheld by. It so captured the hearts of the people of Crete that as an entire people, they were known as liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons because you become what you behold. And here's why Titus is there. Remember Titus, he's the crisis intervention guy, strong affection, winsome personality, devout enthusiasm. The gospel of Jesus made it to Crete. And the gospel of Jesus declares the good news, not of the man become God, Zeus, but the good news of the God become man, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, and God of gods. And some of the people of Crete believed, not all, but some. Paul says about them in chapter three that God's mercy had been richly poured out on them. And in the cities of Crete, there were a handful of of house churches, small congregations that met in homes all across the island. But there's a problem happening in these churches. Uh, The Christians were really confused. And how could they not be? They had this powerful, deeply embedded idea of the Cretan God. And then they had this new news, the good news of the Christian God. And as they tried to reconcile those, as they lived uh, in a culture that heralded one and ignored the other, the lines were starting to blur for these Christians. The view of God for many of them was some kind of mixture of Jesus and Zeus together. On top of that, there were teachers that were influencing the church, saying things about the Christian God that were not true. So if it's true that what you behold, you become, the Christians in Crete were becoming the kinds of people who look like a mixture between the Christian God and the Cretan God. They they felt this pressure to be like the Cretan God, to drink more than you should, to lie to get what you want, to indulge in whatever you want. But they also were people who'd been saved by Jesus and they had given their lives to him. If I were to state the problem in a way that connects it to our wisdom series, the Christians in Crete were torn between living in God's world, God's way, or living in God's world, the Cretan way. So Paul writes to Titus, and over and again, he says this, teach what is true about God. Behold the Christian God, the one true God. The way he says it throughout the book is teach sound doctrine. Declare the truth of Jesus, not the man become God through seduction and deceit, but the God become man compelled by love for God and love for others. In chapter two, he says, so that everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. They would adorn the truth about Jesus, meaning that beholding God, the truth about the Christian God, it would so change them that it comes out of their life as if it's beautiful garments that clothe a beautiful gospel. That's the book. That's the message of Titus. Don't become like the Cretan gods. Become like the Christian God by beholding the Christian God who loves you and saved you and cherishes you. Um, 
What we would do well to begin considering is back to our question of what you are beholding, what I'm beholding, and to ask who are we becoming in light of that. Um, there's a danger. I, 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 can, I can even, I'm not trying to assume it, but it's almost, I can just sense it. It would be really easy to hear all that I've said these past 15 minutes about the Cretan people, about what it's like to be a Christian in Crete, and just feel really far removed from all of it. What does this have to do with my life? What does this have to do with what I came here to hear? What does it have to do with our context? We're not a people who believe polytheistic myths and worship Greek gods. You know what I can't relate to? I can't relate to Christians who had a problem confusing Jesus and Zeus. That's true. Here's what I can relate to, and maybe you can as well. I can relate to things that are not God having such a hold on my heart that I'm becoming something different than who I want to be. I can relate to living in a culture that puts immense pressure on me as a Christian to pursue things and to become like a person that's different than the person of Jesus. Can't you? If you ask a Cretan in the first century, who do you want to be like? The answer is, I want to be like one of the Cretan gods. If you ask an American in 2023, who do you want to be like? Their answer will, I want to be like one of our culture's gods. We have gods, they just have different names. We worship power and we want to become powerful because that's one of our gods. We worship control and we want to become a people who can perfectly secure all that we want. We worship comfort and want to be a people always at ease and free of pain. We worship approval and we want to work for all the acceptance that we want. We worship the idea of the secular self and we want to be free to pursue whatever impulses we think give us the most value and identity. We have our own gods. And here's what I think is true, friend. Because we don't call them gods, I think it makes us even more vulnerable to blur the lines. So what I can relate to and what you can relate to is needing to behold the true, good, and beautiful God so that I'm not becoming something different than who I profess that I want to be. And what I'm assuming about most of us, what I'm hoping about all of us, is that if I ask you, who do you most want to become like, you would say, Jesus. At the very least, that's what your heart desires. And so what my heart needs and what your heart needs is to behold God. My daughter likes to draw. Um, she'll see a picture and she'll so love that picture that she wants to recreate it for herself. Uh, and, and her favorite thing to draw uh, is our dogs. She loves dogs. She adore, if, if it were up to her, we would own two of every breed of dog that exists. That's how much she loves dogs. And so she'll find a picture that she loves, that makes her smile, and she'll print it out, and then she'll recreate it by drawing it herself. And so she'll set the picture in front of her, and if you watch her, here's what happens. Her eyes do two things. She looks at the picture, and she looks down and draws. She stops to look, then she starts to draw. She stops to look again, and then she starts to draw again. And what's true is, the more she stops and looks, the more her drawing reflects the picture. And the cadence of the Christian life is like that. We pause often to look at God. We pause to behold God. We look to Him live our lives like him. We look to him and live our lives like him. We give our eyes to him so that our hearts might slowly, imperfectly, in need of much grace, look like him. So again, it's 2 Corinthians, beholding the glory of the Lord, transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
And that's what the book of Titus invites us to do. With, with the few minutes we have left, would you look with me at these verses again? Because Paul wastes no time in his letter inviting us to behold God. In this very first line, we're invited to behold a God of grace. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Every word of this sentence erupts with grace. Paul, the fact that Paul is the one writing this about himself, there's just grace dripping all over it. Paul was once an enemy of God. He was self-righteous. He was violent. He was involved in the murder of a Christian named Stephen. He stood by while he was murdered in the street, and then he didn't stop there. He led a charge in persecuting Christians. He was an enemy of the church of Jesus. And so Paul is writing to a people in a city with an evil reputation as a person who once had an evil reputation. There was a time where he would have written verse one like this, Paul, an enemy of God and a persecutor of Jesus Christ. And then what happened is one day the risen Jesus met him on the road and changed his life. Jesus met his hate with love and turned his violent rage against Jesus into passionate mission for Jesus. And so he writes this letter and he calls himself his servant and messenger. Then he says, it's for the sake of God's elect. It speaks to all the people including us, who God in his sovereign, life-changing grace has made his own people, has met our sin with grace and love, is changing our lives. And in this letter, it includes the people who live in this notoriously evil place. Oh, please hear me. The light of the gospel of Jesus travels to the darkest places, and it often does its best and brightest and most beautiful work in the places that we would think are most out of reach. I don't know all the stories in the room. And I don't know what you've done, and I don't know what you think God thinks about you, but I need all of us to know that Jesus is the kind of God who sees someone who's literally destroying his people like Paul and says, not only do I have forgiveness for him, I have plans for him. I can take all of that hate and all of that evil and I can turn it into something beautiful. And Jesus is the kind of God who sees a people who are known for centuries, are famous for their evil. And Jesus says, I will make my name famous among them. I will meet their evil reputation with my love and my grace. And all who follow me will get to belong to a new city and a new people and be given a new name. And that's what he offers me. And that's what he offers you. Maybe you would say, I don't like who I'm becoming. <laughs> More often than I wish were true, I think that. Uh, so much I wish I could change about me. And so many times that I think I don't know how to be different than I am. That's who Jesus came for. Those who have no shot of fixing their life on their own. So he doesn't just offer a life that's worth imitating and says, you should fill in the gap between where you are and where I'm at. He offers his own death and resurrection in our place for all of the ways that we fall short of becoming like him. Hear me, friend, his grace for us is so much greater than the sin inside of us. Behold the grace of God, the God of grace. It says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies. Paul says, behold the God of truth. Now having heard the context of the Christians in Crete, how important is it that Paul says, the God who never lies? It's a direct contrast between the Christian God and the Cretan God, and it means everything that God says is true. 
He is trustworthy. If you were to describe to me the relationship in your life that feels the safest, the relationship in your life that you treasure the most, you would describe to me the relationship in your life where there is the most trust. And what Paul is saying is that relation, that kind of high trust relationship is the relationship that you've been invited into with God. He never lies. So he's not lying when his word tells us what's best for us. He's not lying when he promises that all things will work out for our good. He's not lying when he says he holds all things together, even on days like today. He's not lying when he says he's perfectly holy and just and generous. He's not lying when he says he's merciful and he offers us rest. And he's not lying when he says he loves you. He loves you. He can't lie. So we encounter his love for us in his word. It's from a God of truth. Every word is as true as his character and his holy reputation. We can trust him. And it says this, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Behold the God of hope. It's saying that God created a perfect world. And God knew that perfect world would be broken by sin. But even before that perfect world was broken by sin, God had a plan to put that world back together. And those plans have been made known in and through the person of Jesus who rose again, who conquered death. And what Jesus, our King, is doing is he is creating a world and bringing a world that one day is free of death and pain, and sickness, and mass shootings, and grieving moms, and he promises to make everything sad, untrue, and wipe away every tear, and fill the world with peace and joy, where we for all of eternity will behold him and become like him. Behold the God of hope. Would you pray with me, friends? Just have a few things I want us to consider together in prayer. Listen, if, if there's any part of you that is open to the idea that God has you here for the beautiful purpose of making you more like his son, Jesus, if you believe that, would you consider my friend? What are you beholding? What God, what dream, what vision of a future self has so captured your heart that it's changing your life? And is it Jesus? Is it some mixture of the gods of our culture in Jesus? Is it some reconfiguration of God in our own image instead of us being made in his? Or is it, my friend, the true, perfect, pure, gentle, mighty, loving Savior? Behold him with me, my friends. Confess. Uh, where uh, what we've done is we've 
been living our lives and then looking up at something else and then living our lives and then looking up at something that's not God. And would you receive the invitation to turn our eyes, like the song says, on Jesus? To fix our eyes, like the verse says, on the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we love you. We need you. May we behold you today uh, in our uh, pain, God. We behold you. In our confusion, may we look to you. In our sin, may we behold a God of grace who is present, near, gracious, merciful, even when we're at our worst. We love you. We need you. Amen.